Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition, the Valentine's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, February 14th, 2024, and today we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days. Before we get into those questions, we want to give a special shout out to those of you who've been listening loyally on our podcast version of the Midweek Roundup uh, with well over 3,100 downloads now uh, for the last uh, few years that we've been doing this. Uh, really a pleasure to be coming to your into your ears, into your brains every week uh, to talk about these international education issues. And to those who are watching live or on repeat on our YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook pages, we appreciate you uh, listening in each week uh, to get your uh, our thoughts on the topics of the day in our field. So as we do each week, we take the stories that we uh, cover here on in question format on the Roundup uh, from our newsletter that comes out on Mondays each each week. And for those that, who aren't subscribed to the newsletter, that's available uh, on our website at smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. And I'll be dropping the link to that in the chat here in a minute. And that will help you, uh, if you want, scroll down to the subscribe button, and then you can uh, enter your name, institution, and your uh, email address, and we'll get you signed up for that newsletter uh, right away. Uh, We also have a LinkedIn version of that newsletter uh, that you can subscribe to for free, and that is available, uh, that comes out at every week at 9 uh, excuse me, 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time every week on LinkedIn. So I'm going to be putting the LinkedIn version of this week's newsletter where you can subscribe directly from that uh, newsletter uh, template that you see in the chat. And they are also will drop in the email version so you can stay up to date uh, with what's going on as we chat through these three questions today. Now, the newsletter covers social media and international education news every week, covers about 20, 30 different topics every week from uh, AI, social media, digital digital, uh, news, uh, webinars that are coming up, uh, blogs that are of particular relevance, I think, and then also covers international ed news, both uh, in the U.S. in terms of top news stories affecting international educators in the U.S. and students, and then also uh, solutions on how to we can potentially overcome some of the challenges we face in our business, and there are a few, aren't there? And finally, we also have a global roundup as part of that newsletter that talks about, like we do each week here on the roundup, talks about different countries around the world and the challenges that they are facing with uh, restrictions and our growth uh, in international student mobility to their countries and to and from their countries. So let's get right to the first question of the day. How are you messaging Asian students today? Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that uh, when we when we talk about uh, messaging in Asia, uh, everybody's eyes first usually go to to China and for for good reason, since they have been uh, until recently the number one source of uh, international students in the United States. Uh, but what's, uh, what's important, I think, to keep in mind when we're talking about Asia is it is a very diverse region uh, from the Middle East through to East Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, South Asia, very different uh, than uh, very distinct regions. That's let's, uh, let's, uh, an easy way to say it. But in terms of what we can do uh, to uh, better break down Asia into manageable chunks. Anyone who's traveled there knows that it's uh, a, a very 
challenging region at times to uh, come up with a consistent approach that will work well in every country. And the, one of the reasons it doesn't, uh, we know in China that uh, every, it's a completely different social ecosystem there. Uh, you have to be on their individual platforms, WeChat, Yuku, uh, Doyan, um, all the different versions that uh, they have, QQ, uh, of our Western social media. So uh, that is a challenge in and of itself. Uh, but it's also uh, within Korea, uh, knowing that neighbors, the, the, where, they're, where students are spending their time, uh, and which messaging platforms in India versus Vietnam versus Thailand are most effective, or, or is it TikTok, like in Indonesia, which is one of the top three countries in the world that's on TikTok. So I'm, I'm kind of wrapping your heads around all that data uh, and what works in different countries is, is, a, is a messy one. It's not easy. Uh, and traveling in the region is never, never a, a cakewalk either. So uh, there are always going to be challenges here when we, when we think about these things. And, and today, what I'd like to do is share with you a little bit on uh, what uh, some of our, our, our friends in the business uh, that are active in Asia have, been, uh, have, been, have, have had to say. First up is a webinar coming up a week from tomorrow on Thursday the 22nd from our friends at Sonorbis on tools and strategies to engage students from Asia. Now, uh, they talk about uh, whether it's Line in Japan and Thailand, WhatsApp in India, WeChat in China, uh, for messaging. Uh, they have a platform now that can go Pan-Asia Pan in terms of being able to use similar messages and send out across those different social platforms to students in, re in country. Uh, so it allows that flexibility in terms of how you respond to students. Uh, there is also uh, um, a target, uh, or a trend report here from our friends at Sunrise uh, talks about uh, various trends in Chinese education uh, that have to do uh, with agents uh, that are, have developed in the region over the last, uh, few, last three or four years, particularly uh, since COVID. It was a big uh, contraction uh, in the number of agents uh, pre-COVID and uh, during COVID certainly didn't help. And now there's a, a growth again, but from unlikely sources and smaller mom and pop shops that might not have the funding to go through accreditation. So there's all, all sorts of interesting twists and turns in this um, in, in looking at Asia. So what we uh, when we talk about that, uh, and particularly the fr our friends at Sonorbis and Sunrise, they both know China very well. That's where they uh, Sunrise started and is, has made their bread and butter there. Uh, uh, Synorbis started in China and has expanded into a, a Pan-Asia approach to messaging uh, digital platforms and all of that. But uh, one, of the, one of the other pieces of this puzzle, um, and that is also, also worth noting here, is uh, what's happening with agents in China. And that's, that's a particular concern, particularly if you've not been active in China yet. Uh, you certainly will want to be because there's a lot going on uh, and it's not a market that's, that's dying. Uh, it's maybe uh, going through some changes in terms of where students are going, but there is still huge demand for study abroad in China. But there's a, it's a lot more competitive landscape, so that means uh, having a, a very specific approach to not just focusing on the, if you're not a top-tier institution, not just focusing on the major metropolitan areas and getting out to the sec second and third-tier cities in the country where there may be more uh, a willingness to go outside of those top uh, top institutions that uh, traditionally uh, top ch Chinese students flood to. So uh, the the key is um, in China, in India, in Thailand, in Vietnam, in Japan, Korea. It's knowing 
what platforms the students are on that's half the battle. And this is something we always talk about at SMIE Consulting. Uh, and I do this in my role with, uh, with UNLV as Director of Global Recruitment and Partnerships, is making sure we have an understanding across our campus um, in terms of, uh, on the prospective student side, living where your audiences live and having a presence, and that means these days in the digital age, having a presence on those platforms where those students spend their time. And the folks at uh, Sonorbus are, have, that, have that dialed in, they have the data to back up why you're focusing online in Japan and Thailand, why it's neighbor in, in Korea, why it's WhatsApp in India uh, and other countries that, that, that you know that so you have a, an advantage going in that you have, you're prepared for making the, making the right decisions in the right countries. So key in all of these uh, is not only living where those where your audience lives, but also have messaging that makes is attractive for students in that audience, in that demographic, in that country. And more and more um, students expect to be able to communicate with current students as part of their journey. So are current students in, involved in your current messaging out to students? Uh, to future students. Uh, if they're not, maybe that's something that in your key markets uh, you work on developing, uh, the kind of student ambassador roles or volunteers that you can train on uh, standard admissions questions, but really to talk about student life, uh, to be able to have those folks that can provide that outlet for the need future students have to know what's going on on your campus if they're going to make a truly informed decision because they're we all know they're not going to visit before they come so the more time more opportunities you have to put your current students in front of your future students and if you can do that from the same country or same language group then you're increasing the opportunities for you to enroll that student uh, as long as the conversations are positive. So these are these are the challenges we face in uh, messaging to, to students in Asia. And certainly those of us that uh, have have traveled in the region know it's it's different everywhere you go. Uh, there isn't a one-size-fits-all for, uh, for, for messaging out anymore. And if uh, not all campuses are even segmenting out for special international campus messages, international student messages. And that's something that really should be a priority for your institution if you're going to be taken seriously uh, by, by students is uh, show, having messaging that reflects the needs that, that you have, uh, that your future students have. And the more you can attune your messaging with those needs, the better your opportunity is to convert them through the process. Let's get on to our second question of the day. And this is one that uh, for those that have uh, watched us on the Roundup for any length of time, you know that uh, when it comes to uh, the issue of testing, uh, particularly standardized testing on the academic achievement side uh, at the undergrad level especially. This is one of those uh, not pet projects but certainly one of those um, issues that can really really get you going uh, and there, there aren't uh, too many on the side of oh we need to go back to standardized testing and where we've seen that happen uh, typically it's been either because they're elite institutions and they don't want to change, they don't think, think they have to change. Uh, if they've changed, it's because the peer pressure on them to do so was significant enough uh, that uh, we saw all during the pandemic that uh, now 75% of U.S. colleges and universities have gone test optional for undergraduate admissions. We've seen an increase in the number of graduate programs going test optional. 
uh, though some programs are restricted in terms of do, being able to do that uh, by uh, accrediting body uh, for graduate MBA programs, for example. They, you need to have a GMAT or a GRE for them to uh, admit you uh, for, uh, in m almost all cases, uh, for uh, undergraduates, uh, it could be uh, if you're at an elite school, MIT, as, as uh, I think they went test optional for one term, but they, they went quickly back to requiring uh, uh, international L students to take SAT or ACT. So uh, we have seen, the question is, is test optional dying with elite colleges? Uh, we already shared that 75% of all U.S. undergraduate institutions are test optional now. Uh, so that's, that's the real positive news, I think, in terms of where, where the movement has been going. And when we talk about elite colleges, we are talking about such a small microcosm of U.S. higher education. But they receive, obviously, an outsized uh, portion of attention from news uh, outlets uh, whenever they make big decisions, or what we would consider minor, but when they make decisions to remove tests or take or reinstate tests, then uh, it usually gets a lot of likes and a lot of links and a lot of eyes on. Uh, in this one particular case, uh, Dartmouth is the first of the Ivies to have uh, broken from the, the test optional bandwagon that uh, they all rallied onto during the pandemic with good reason. They'd be foolish to have, uh, to have not gone test optional during the pandemic. Uh, but you, you could tell that there were some of them that were just getting a little bit antsy. It's like, oh, are we really crafting our classes the way we want them to last fall and in 2022? Uh, is it really, do we really get the, the data to show that we don't need these test scores anymore and we're still getting high achievers in the classroom? These are all the kinds of questions that go on at only a very small percentage of uh, colleges in the United States. But again, they receive the largest share of news attention. So Dartmouth has made the decision to go back uh, for fall 24, or fall, fall 25 maybe. Fall 25, I guess, would be the first intake that they will be requiring SAT, ACT again for international all applicants. So uh, it doesn't seem like there have been other takers. Cornell has uh, decided to stay test optional, and they made that decision shortly after Dartmouth decided to, to go back. Uh, we haven't seen movement on any, any of the other Ivies yet. Uh, so we'll keep you posted, obviously, in the, in, the, in the newsletter as well as here on the Roundup if there seems to be more momentum gathering pace to switch back uh, to uh, test required. So the question of uh, test optional, frankly, is a, it, it's, a, it's a dull one, and I'm frankly done with it. But it's, it's, a, it's one that deserves, it deserves our attention because internationally, for my money, it's never test optional should be the minimum standard for international students because it's these tests are not designed for international students learning maybe British English in their schools, if at all, uh, in an, their home country or a third country, uh, and it, not having the background to understand a lot of the language that's going to be in the ch meanings and, and phrasings that are used in SAT. And, and ACT tests. So uh, those are, they're not tests designed for international students. They're, they're designed for U.S. citizens in U.S. high schools within the United States learning American English. So um, that's the, the real challenge with uh, for me, uh, and always has been. I've been fortunate enough to have worked every institution I've been at has been test optional for international students, and it's a it's a it's a flag I will carry uh, to my grave in terms of uh, why you do not should not uh, treat international students uh, 
with disrespect by requiring them to take a test that they, was never meant for them. So hopefully that, uh, that, that shows you where I, where at least where I stand on that. But in terms of the elites in the United States, uh, we're talking maybe 25, 50 schools max out of over 4,500 that are potentially going back uh, to, uh, to test required. Uh, and we're not, uh, the, the schools that are, are also in the test required camp now, some of them are restricted because it, the state requires them to, to have, state, re, state legislation requires SAT or ACT to be taken. And in some, some states like Florida and Georgia, I think, uh, you actually have to if you want to have any chance at scholarship. So there's two sides to this test optional coin. You might be test optional for admissions, but then if you need funding at all, you better take an SAT or ACT in some, some states. Even some of the elite schools will tell you that. Uh, that they'll, even though they're test optional for admissions, they will want you to take uh, SAT or ACT if you want a chance at any funding. So uh, it's, a, it's a sticky wicket, as they say, uh, in uh, cricket-friendly uh, countries. But uh, it's one that, for international students, it takes explaining. And frankly, uh, being able to use that, uh, and I, we certainly do at UNLV, when we're talking to international students, because we're test optional, that's a big deal. It's one less test that they need to worry about. We keep things simple with a, at an open, a primarily public access institution, state institution in Nevada. We keep it simple. We're um, test scores, uh, test scores for English, and then transcripts and the online app and the app fee. That's it. We don't overcomplicate the admissions process for undergraduates because we're not an elite institution. We're not the most selective school in the country, uh, but we. We, we feel, and, it, and for international students and domestics, it's, it's the same process. Uh, the only time that SATs or ACTs are even used are for placement of tests for math, mostly. So uh, the value for most colleges and universities of SAT and ACT is it's, 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 it's going the way of the dodo. And uh, if those don't know what dodo is, it's an extinct bird uh, that uh, I think in the early 1900s or late 1800s uh, went uh, went put so um, that's what we hope uh, test required movements uh, would uh, also go kaput uh, that's uh, uh, there's a very a lot of people on that bandwagon and uh, we're certainly one of those but uh, that's all for that question on test optional dying at elite colleges it may be that's maybe a little too early to tell uh, certainly for 2025 most colleges will make those decisions in the next three or four months as to whether they make any changes to their testing policy so hopefully you're staying strong at your institutions and waving that test optional flag particularly for your international applicants now the final question of the day uh, is what happens down under with international students and uh, what's happening actually and uh, there's a lot here uh, that we want to cover because uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to being uh, down under, they've had a, uh, they've ridden a lot of different waves over the last 10, 15 years when it comes to international students um, and trends. And uh, when government certain governments come in and become more restrictive, others come in and open the doors wide open because of the economic benefit, and they don't really see the consequences of how many all um, how many more of these international students have. But what's happening in Australia? We talked about what's happening in Canada last week, and the news stories keep popping in on the impacts of these restrictions that are going into place in Canada, uh, we talked about last week, that we're talking about this week with Australia. Uh, they are, 
uh, we've, we've seen two or three trends recently with Australia. Uh, the government had um, their migration uh, migration regulations changed that uh, looked more closely at the, the, the bad actors in uh, uh, agent bad, bad actor agents that were funneling students to uh, universities that would then automatically uh, or leave after a semester or, or shorter t- duration and enroll in vocational programs just as to get to just use the universities to get their st- visas to get in the country and then really didn't want to pay those university fees and switch to a lower cost uh, vocational program instead to gain a quicker access to citizenship permanent residency in and work in uh, in Australia. So uh, that was one of the changes that when it came into place. There have also been some uh, restrictions, a much more, a much stricter uh, visa screening process uh, that has already resulted in a 20% uh, or, or denial rates of about 20% for international students applying for visas, student visas. So uh, the predicted uh, impact that was going to have in the next year was about over 90,000 fewer international students coming to Australia. Uh, Australia had uh, gotten to record territory this year, this past year, 718,000, I think it was, at uh, one of the most consistent count I've seen, over 700,000 for sure, uh, their largest ever. But now with these regulations coming in, and why are these regulations coming in? This is what we saw last week with Canada as well that we're seeing here uh, with Australia this week, and likely uh, is going to happen in the UK as well. Uh, we've seen that already with their change to their uh, dependent study ban or dependent ban for non-doctoral level students can't bring family members with them anymore as of January 1st. Uh, you've, you've seen uh, challenges uh, in Australia or Canada that we talked about last week that uh, that is going to be a cap that's going to reduce uh, international students coming to Canada by 35% over the next two years, and that the impact that's going to have, particularly on those voc- the vocational sector where a lot of the bad actors existed in Canada or do exist in Canada on the public-private partnerships. Uh, and then we've seen here in Australia uh, with this uh, ratcheting up on requirements, study visa requirements, getting rid of some of the, the bad actors uh, in terms of the agencies that are worked with that are maybe known to uh, have students disappear or what have you. And we've seen uh, quite a bit of that happening uh, in, in Australia. Uh, we, there's a couple news stories that, um, that we're looking at uh, where uh, this record drop in the, the approval rate and I, I think it's important to have a little context here because uh, when it comes to approval rates in the United States, I think at its peak it was about 80, 80% or 86%, I think it might have been on the, on the 80%, more on the 80% ride, 80% side globally in terms of students from all countries coming to the United States for, for, for student visas. What I've seen, uh, obviously, that's uh, we so we know in certain countries the visa approval rate is 25 percent or 50 percent. Uh, so there's a lot of the world that still has uh, visa restrictions, uh, not restrictions, or poor track records for those that want to come to the United States, and probably because we have the most stringent requirements, other than maybe studying in China. Uh, but then they make that path pretty easy uh, just to get the students there. But for the U.S., we have the visa interview requirement. We have very significant funding requirements that students have to have to document, much more significant and much more stringent than what happens with uh, with in Canada, where they up until this this past two months or past fall, it was uh, all students had to show to, to get to qualify for the funding part of their uh, for their study permit was ten thousand dollars. 
The cost of the university attendance might have been fifty, sixty thousand dollars or more, but they only needed to show ten thousand. Uh, they bumped it up to twenty thousand, but still, that's uh, that's that's improvement, and that's going to price out some students in the market, obviously. But we students have to show they have at least one year for the entire cost of education for a specific institution before they get their visa, uh, before they get their I-20 to get their visa. So uh, there is a lot happening down under that uh, on the on the student front, the visa front, that's uh, in terms of how, how they are being viewed, depending on who their agency is, what institutions they're going to, all of those are being much more highly scrutinized. But there's also in Canada, there's also in the Australian situation and in the UK, you've seen the challenges that uh, have existed because there's been these huge increases in international students. The UK got up to uh, seven, seven or eight hundred, seven hundred thousand, I think. Uh, Australia is over seven hundred thousand. Uh, Canada got over eight hundred thousand this past year, so maybe on the closer to nine hundred thousand. What has the news been like in those countries when it comes to international students? There's no housing. We've got students on food stamps so that they, they can't, they're putting all their money into housing. They don't have any money for food. That in Canada, in Australia, in the UK, those are very common stories that happened. And the reason why they're common is because those countries have become so dependent on the revenue from these students that they've pushed the boat out too far with bringing more and more in and the resulting effect on the communities where they live and that's one thing that uh, most universities outside the United States don't have residence halls on campus. And those that do, it's very premium uh, space. Yeah, and most of these countries, they're relying on the local housing stock to absorb their students. Whereas on our campuses in the U.S., we have housing for well, almost all undergraduates and even some grad student housing on, on certain campuses. So what we've seen is that there's real, uh, dis real challenges in some of these uh, some of these countries that have uh, pushed the boat out very far, and I've made this case from day one when we started SMIE Consulting, the United States is the best destination when it comes to quality. It's the best destination in terms of capacity to enroll more international students. We're at 5% of our total higher ed population being international now. In Canada, it's pushing 35, 30, 35. In Australia, it's 40%. In the UK, it's 30, 35%. So that's the result of becoming so dependent on those international students to fund their institutions. So uh, that, that without regard for the impact on the, on the local communities that really are absorbing those students in terms of the housing, in terms of uh, dietary needs, in terms of religious needs, in terms of all these other social things that they need to have in their communities that in the U.S. we provide those on most, most cases on our campuses. That doesn't happen at most of the rest of the world. So these students are kind of being left, left to their own devices and um, that don't have proper guidance all the way around and they get themselves in situations that they shouldn't be in. So what's happening down under in, in, with international students is there's going to be a clampdown. Uh, there already is. The uh, visa rates are dropping. Uh, there's going to be 90,000 fewer students going to international students going to Australia this year as a result. So a lot to digest uh, with what's, what's happening in all the different major receiving countries. Uh, and that's what we keep you up to date with here on the Roundup and in the newsletter. So please, uh, if you aren't already, uh, like and subscribe and share this out to your colleagues who might need to see this. Uh, also, please feel free to share the links uh, to our newsletter as well so that they can have that for their uh, 
their edification. So thanks very much again for being a part of the conversation today. And for those of you in love, happy Valentine's Day. Enjoy it. Take care.